Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. So welcome to week two of our series called Tighten the Knot. Um, my name is Peter, and uh, we're going to start preaching about that. Um, can I just say, last week, Pastor Brian, by the way, uh, fourth week on staff, and uh, I gave him arguably one of the, one of the hardest messages to, uh, to preach as a, uh, a dude and especially a guy um, fresh to, uh, to staff where, you know, essentially it was like, hey, wives, submit to your husbands as husbands submit to God. Like, that's a tough passage to be able to preach regardless of how long you've been on staff. I was like, hey, man four weeks, ready, go. Uh, but I'm thankful uh, for him getting this, uh, this series under, underway for us. And um, uh, today I get to talk through a foundational passage uh, in regards to marriage. It's going to be found in, in Matthew 19. So you can flip over to Matthew 19 if you uh, want to do that. But before we get there, I want to tell you about uh, my parents' marriage. Okay? Um, uh, I was very, very lucky growing up to have a great biblical example of marriage. Um, my mom and my dad, of course, like all parents at some point, got into, you know, arguments and fights here and there. Um, but, uh, but for the most part, it was, a, it was a very healthy relationship, at least from my, from my vantage point as a kid growing up. Even all of my, uh, my friends that I grew up with, all of them, none of their parents, I never saw a ton of divorce or anything like that. I think a handful here and there, but it was uh, more few and far between uh, than anything. So growing up, man, I always had like this good view of what, what marriage should look like. And uh, I think this was exemplified when my dad um, was going in for a surgery at, at some time and my mom is in the hospital and um, uh, visiting or with, sitting with my dad before he goes in for surgery. And man, ladies, you were so good at this. It's just like sitting next to people where like no words need to be shared and just like holding a hand and like rubbing the top of somebody's hand and just like being content and sitting in that. Like, guys, we are not good at that at all. I walked in and I was like, I need to talk about something. I need to talk about sports. I'm convinced guys don't even like sports. It's just something for us to talk about to break the awkwardness of uh, hanging out with other dudes. Um, and so I walk in and my mom is sitting there rubbing the top of my dad's hand and uh, my dad is, is sleeping and my mom is just sitting there like reading a book and I'm sitting there just like looking at this example that I have to me of a, a marriage commitment, not only to one another, but also this marriage commitment that they have um, to the Lord as well. So an incredible testament to, to marriage. And then fast forward to, to my marriage. A lot of you know, Sarah and I have been married for, uh, for 15 years. Uh, we did it. Marriage is easy now. Um, and uh, once you get to 15 years, I mean, that's what I'm assuming. We'll see. I'll let you know next year. Um, but, but in those 15 years of marriage, there's been really great moments. There's been difficult um, moments. There's been fun moments. There's been sad moments. And so I just want to make you aware, like, as I'm talking about this and talking through marriage, something that so deeply affects a lot of us, I mean, either we are married and we're walking through the thick of it, or you were married at one point and are, are single now, either because of a loss of a loved one or, or divorce, or uh, man, you are looking forward to being married one day, um, whatever it may be, like this plays deeply into, into all, like into who we were created 
to be. And so I just want you to be aware, like my marriage isn't, isn't perfect. It doesn't mean I have all of this stuff figured out. This only means that I've studied up on what scripture has to say regarding marriage and I have the microphone, which means I get to talk about it. So, um, so that's kind of where we're, we're at today. But I think one of the most important things for me when I came into my marriage, I got married when I was 22 years old, uh, was seeing that I, like I said, I had great role models to look up to when I was younger. I always saw this biblical example of marriage. I distinctly remember having a conversation with my dad. We were in the computer room when that was still a thing. We were in the computer room and um, we were sitting there and my mom and my dad had just gotten in some sort of argument, some sort of fight. And I was like in fourth or fifth grade and I was just like, looked at my dad, I was like, dad, are you guys going to get a divorce? And like really innocent, right? But obviously I'd heard that word. I'd heard like, you know, seeing that happen in, in some of my friends' lives and that sort of thing. Um, and I distinctly remember my dad told me that divorce is never an option. Me and mom, we never even talk about divorce. We don't even joke about divorce. That word is not on the table for us. Do not worry about that. And so because of this good role model, these good role models that I had growing up, even, even before I knew what God's design was for marriage, I, I knew that I wanted to uh, save myself for marriage physically. I want to be a virgin when I got married. I hope the same for my, my future bride. Um, I wanted to get married young, and I never wanted to consider divorce ever. And I remember thinking those things, and not necessarily because I had cracked open the Bible and read Matthew 19 or, or read in Ephesians or read in Genesis 1 and 2 or anything like that. I remember thinking to myself, this is what I want for marriage because of the biblical example that was put forth by my parents originally. So for the end of my mini sermon slash introduction to my major sermon, parents in the room, if you want your kids to have a biblical marriage, have a biblical marriage, okay? I think we need to remember that, that more with our kids is taught or caught than, than taught. Because I had those good, those good role models, man, I knew what the Bible said because of the role models that I had in my life. Because even if your kids never pick up a Bible, before they get married, they will indeed already have the knowledge of a God-honoring relationship built into their being because of who mom and dad were to one another and how they worshiped God. So that's step one when it comes to marriage. But we forget that. Our culture forgets what a God-honoring marriage even is, what a God-honoring marriage looks like. Forget what it even means. Like even when I mentioned being a virgin until I got married, Right? Like, like that seems like in today's culture, like an antiquated idea that nobody sticks to anymore. Like, yeah, sure. I know that's what Christians believe, but are you really, you're really going to, you're going to stay on that? Like you're going to stick on that? Like that's, that's what we're, we're going to, we're going to do. Like no one sticks to that anymore. Like our culture and Christians raised in church as well, we can no longer even point to a biblical definition or example of marriage. And that's an issue when we as Christians cannot explain the, what God's intention and design for marriage is, when many of us are sitting in the same, same seats week in and week out, like that's an issue if we cannot communicate what God's design for marriage is. So some people have distorted some verses in, in the Bible to believe that Christians should only get married and to have sex to make babies, right? That's it. That's the only reason you get married is to procreate. And that's the only reason you should ever have sex with your spouse is to procreate. So there's some distortion 
there, other people have distorted marriage into a competition of equality just to make sure there's no hint of sexism in marriage. So whatever the man can do, the woman can do also, right? And there's just like these odd distortions that culture has made both in and outside of the, outside of the church, neither of which are, are healthy. And beyond that, our culture now has no care or concern for who gets married to who. And on one hand, can't blame them for not holding to a biblical worldview. Why? Because they don't know Jesus and they don't know a biblical worldview. On the other hand, God has established marriage as a very specific kind of relationship and a very specific type of covenant. And so because of that, that relationship works best when it is put into place in a God-honoring way. And then lastly, oftentimes we've assumed that marriage is nothing more than just a piece of paper that someone like myself or someone like a judge in a courtroom has to sign off on to make sure, okay, now we're legally married. I think that's a very low view of marriage, and I think we're going to do our best to look at what that means today as well. That is a very low view. So then the question has to be, what exactly is marriage? What's the definition of marriage? Who gets to establish that definition of marriage? Why does it matter? What does it look like? Whose idea is it? And so today I want to go back to the very beginning, back to the foundation of marriage itself, because we know that any structure that has a bad foundation isn't going to be able to stand anyway. So we need to make sure we have a a strong foundation. And this is the, the approach that Jesus takes as well. So Jesus is asked by some Pharisees in Matthew chapter 19. Some Pharisees, they come to test Jesus at this. And they ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Like, is there a reason that it would be okay for a man to divorce his wife? They're asking about the nature of marriage as it relates to kind of divorce as a whole. And in response, Jesus points them back to the foundations of marriage, which was created by by God himself. So before we unpack that anymore, biblical definition of marriage. This is what it is. It's up here. Marriage was created by God, and this is a heavy, dense definition. So marriage was created by God as a sacred covenant relationship between a man and a woman based on a public vow of lifetime faithfulness. That's, and, and all of those words matter. All of those words are heavy. All of those words are important. So as you look more closely at Jesus' words here in Matthew 19, you'll see that this is indeed a biblical definition of marriage. And it'll be back up on the screen in a little bit. So for you note takers, if you're jotting it down, it'll come back up. But this is where it starts in Matthew 19:4. It says, haven't you read, he replied, obviously talking to um, the teachers of the law, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. Okay. Pause right there, verse four. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, the creator made them male and female. So first off, we get to see who defined marriage. Good question. God did. Okay, and so we've got like, why does he get to define marriage? Well, because God created it, just like the person who created the snuggie got to name the snuggie and create its purpose. God created marriage and got to name and say what marriage was about. Marriage is not a human invention. We did not come up with the idea of marriage on our own simply because that we were bored one day and we're like, you know what? I want to hang out with somebody forever, for better or worse. That wasn't the case. Like God created marriage for us. If you go back to Genesis, back to creation, back to the very beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, like God made marriage part of the original created order. Marriage is introduced in in Genesis chapter 1, and then we get an even more detailed explanation in Genesis chapter 2. But if you, like like oftentimes I think, oh, Genesis 1 and 2, we're going back to the creation narrative. 
Going back to God created the heavens and the earth, like God did all of this, this cool stuff. But this is the basis that we have for marriage as well. So when Jesus was questioned about marriage, man, there's a bunch of verses in the Old Testament he could have talked about, rules that, you know, you could have had to put into place to make sure that everybody was clean and ceremonial clean, like all of this other stuff. But, but Jesus, he goes straight back to Genesis 1 and 2, back to the foundations of marriage, the creational passages of Scripture that God created marriage for mankind and he created mankind for marriage. Marriage is part of the created order. And so we learn in Genesis 1 and 2 that marriage was the very first institution created by God. The very first institution, right? In the beginning, the creator made them male and female before God created the family, before God created the church, before God created government, before God created anything else, uh, God created marriage as the very first institution of everything before any other institution. And so because of that, marriage is a primary institution. Marriage forms the building blocks of society. It's the very foundation of our entire civilization. And once again, the structure is only as sound as its foundation. So we got to make sure that we're building our society on a strong foundation, right? For, search, for centuries, millennia, marriage has been that foundation. When society gets marriage right, like when we get marriage right, marriage provides a stable foundation for all other human relationships, provides a solid foundation for sexual expression, a solid foundation for the raising of kids, solid foundation even for like the transfer of property and other like economic necessities and resources, right? Like all of this flows back into marriage. Take away marriage, you no longer have human civilization as we know it. You'll have something else, right? But you will not have what God created for our benefits. That's the first part of our definition, that God created marriage. Marriage is part of the created order, and it's the first institution created by God. All of those things are important. So this is all wrapped up in God. It is not just some little piece of paper that some, you know, pastor or somebody who got ordained in 10 minutes online to be able to do a marriage. Like, it is so much more than that and so much deeper than that. So the next part of the definition talks about marriage being a sacred covenant relationship. We're going to come back to that point at the very, very end when we get to verse 6. But for right now, I want to continue with verse 4, where Jesus teaches us that God created marriage as a relationship between a man and a woman. Right, if you look at his words again in verse 4, it says that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female. And so Jesus affirms that, that male and female is an essential part of the definition of marriage, an essential part of the definition of marriage. And in making this kind of affirmation, Jesus is referring back to Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1, 27, we read that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he, he created them, or created him. Male and female, he created them. Right, so oftentimes we think about that man was created in the image of God. That verse kind of sticks out. Man was created in the image of God. This isn't just man who's created in the image of God if you read the entire verse. It is man and woman who are both created in the image of God. It's one of the best truths in all of Scripture that we as human beings are created in the very image of the creator of the entire universe. This foundational truth, like this sets us apart from the rest of creation. Nothing else is as good or as special as us in God's eyes. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. Don't believe me? Go back and read Genesis chapter 1. The earth and the sky were not created in God's, 
image. The land and the water were not created in God's image. Vegetation was not created in God's image. The sun and the moon and the stars were not created in God's image. All the living creatures that swim in the sea or fly across the sky or move on the land, none of those things were created in God's image. Man and woman alone were created in God's image to reflect God's glory. So remember, it's both of us. It's not simply man. It's not simply woman. Every single human being, whether male or female, is created in God's image. But then it keeps, it keeps going because in Genesis 2.18, it says, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And this is where the amen start because Genesis 2.18 reminds us, it's not good for a man to be alone. Amen, women? Amen. Good. It's not good for man to be alone. Why? Well, there's several reasons. First off, uh, their, their protein consumption would be too high and they won't be reminded to eat enough roughage. Okay? So very, very important for us to remember. <laughs> I'm just kidding. As I got a, a smoked pulled pork last night from a friend, I was like, I don't need salad with this. This is fine. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, but, but really, first off, why, why is it that man needed a helper? Why is it that man needed woman? Well, first of all, there was a need for babies. Okay? If, if woman had not been created, then mankind would have been pretty short-lived. Both the first person would also have been the last person on earth right? So procreation was indeed necessary. But secondly, there's this need for companionship. And if you look at Genesis 2, you'll see that God essentially sent Adam around. He was like, hey, go name all of the animals. Like, that's a terrible job, first of all, right? Like, hey, Adam, do me a favor. Go name all of the animals. So Adam's going and he's naming all the animals. He's like crocodile, giraffe. Like, I don't even know where that word came from. But these are all of the things. And God, there is no helper, no helper suitable for Adam found anywhere. And so God was like, all right, we're going to do something about that. Adam, go to sleep, okay? So he knocks Adam out, puts him into a really, really uh, deep sleep. And then all of a sudden, he creates Eve from that. So he found we found that there is this deep need for companionship. Plenty of animals around him, none of them for him to be able to talk to, right? No one corresponded with him as a human being. He needed companionship. And then thirdly, there was this need for intimacy, okay? God created the man as a sexual being, not simply for procreation, but also to enjoy the intimacy of a relationship with his wife, this is real. This is biblical, okay? I think the church has done a poor job about talking about sex and intimacy and all of that for a very, very long time. And so because of it, society has hijacked it, okay? So be aware, like, remember, God created sex. Like, he is the reason sex happens. Amen, guys, right? You can use that later on, okay? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> And then fourthly, there was this need for stability, that God created human beings to, to spread out and to rule over the entire earth for God's glory. Like society would need a stable foundation in order to fulfill that covenant, in order to fulfill that command, rather. So marriage is indeed that necessary foundation, and the man alone, man, he cannot provide that stability. And so I want to caution you about hearing this as, well, man needed something, and so because of that, the wife was made. 
And that's what it feels like. It feels like, okay, and, and here's your sidekick, man. No, all of these things are mutual. Okay, procreation cannot happen if it was just female either. Companionship cannot happen if it was just female either. Sexual intimacy cannot happen if it was just female either. Stability wouldn't happen if it was just a female. So these two humans are created for one another, and it was not good for man to be alone. So God said, I will make a helper suitable to him. A helper who would fulfill all of these needs for procreation, companionship, intimacy, and stability. And so like I said, God put man into a deep sleep and he popped a rib out. And he was like, all right, here is Eve. And he made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. He brought her to the man. I like what Matthew Henry says about this. It's a famous quote, and ladies love this quote. So this is what it is. The woman was made out of a rib of, uh, sorry, a woman was made, made of a rib out of, the man, out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved right? Good, right? I mean, that, that speaks to this idea of a helper. All of those things, not the head of man, not being trampled on by man, but out of his side. And granted, this isn't biblical, but man, what a word picture. And so when the man was all alone, like God created woman for him, a suitable helper, one who would fulfill all of these different needs. So can I just pause here for just a second and get up on my soapbox and talk about the wars of equality that we are currently having in our nation, in our society, that are just a little bit ridiculous? Like, I very truly and firmly believe that God created man and woman equal but very, very different. Equal but very, very different. And I'm not going to speak in generalities here. I'm not going to say the boys should go outside and eat dirt and girls should stay inside and learn how to cook because I firmly believe that girls and boys should both be outside eating dirt and girls and boys should both be inside learning how to cook um, as well. But truth be told, I think boys and girls, uh, God created them perfectly and perfectly different. That God created man and woman differently. And the idea that we have to erase all semblance of difference for the sake of equality is absolutely insane to me. It doesn't make any sense. Like we are effectively erasing anything special about man and erasing anything special about women when we are saying there's no difference between the two of them. There's a huge difference between man and woman. And that is a great thing. I am so thankful that Sarah and I are built so differently. And not just when it comes to like raising our kids and that sort of thing. Because like, you know, you got to have the manly influence. You got to have the feminine influence. You got to have like those two different things in order for kids to grow up. But man, I am so thankful that we are created so differently so we can also serve and honor God in those differences. And so our kids, for me, man, they get so much manliness, right? Like so much testosterone, super manly stuff from their dad. And then they get that feminine side from mom, right? Where mom gets to love them and hug them and nurture them and do all of those things that moms do so well that I would hate to try to do. It is so difficult for me. Like my kid gets hurt and I'm like, get up, you're fine. And Sarah always looks at me and she's like, just hold on, just hold on. And goes over and hugs the child and nurtures the child and does all of those things before he gets up and he goes and runs off. And then I'm like, I told you he was fine. 
But it's different, right? And even the way that Sarah and I do ministry, we are, we are created differently. Like Sarah does ministry like with kids in such a way that it, it, like it would be impossible for me to do that well. Like kids don't think I'm funny. They don't think I'm interesting. Some of you are like, amen. But when I go back there and like I'm in kids ministry, like it is not great. It is not good for me to be serving in kids ministry. And Sarah just like smiles at kids, like strange kids, and they run up and just hug her. I'm like, that, I don't know if that's okay. I don't know if I should ever do that. Because we're created differently. I'm so thankful that we are created differently. And then God put us together on the same team in order to not only raise our kids, but also, and more importantly, to impact the kingdom of God with our marriage, with all of its differences, our wonderful God-created differences at the forefront of this so we can proclaim the gospel in our marriage in a more real way. Why? Because God created us different, but we're equal. And we've forgotten that, but I digress. We need to keep going. Matthew 19, verses 5 and 6, it says, And said, so this is Jesus continuing his passage, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So Jesus is actually referring back here to Genesis 2.24. And in Genesis 2.24, it actually tells us there are three parts of this thing called marriage. First off, there's this thing called leaving. You have to leave. The man will leave his father and mother. And of course, this applies to the woman as well. So for both husband and wife, there is a leaving of the family of origin in order to form a new family unit. That's important. There are still strong ties of love. Right? You should still do your best to have affection and love for your extended family members, but marriage creates a new family unit, which now becomes your primary family unit and your primary responsibility. Marriage entails this new loyalty, which requires leaving mom and dad. Like the new loyalty is expressed in the marriage vow where the man and the woman, they make a public vow of lifetime faithfulness. They are leaving their, their old primary family to now create a new one. And some of you in here, man, you need to hear this. Your loyalty is not to your mom and dad if you are married. Your loyalty is not to your brothers or your sisters if you're married. It's not to your aunts or your uncles if you're married. Your loyalty is not to your extended family if you are married. Your loyalty remains with your spouse and your spouse alone if you are married. There is a new loyalty that has to be created, but it doesn't stop at loyalty, right? Verse 5 reminds us that we need to be united to our spouse, Okay, this unite, like this idea of being united to, it it takes place in sexual consummation of the marriage, right? So the man and the woman make a public vow of lifetime faithfulness and then consummate a sexual relationship, united with one flesh, one body. The word translated united here, it's a word that means to cleave. I know cleave, some of you guys are like, I don't even know what cleave means. Is that like a knife term? No, it actually means to be like to to be joined together, to adhere, to be glued together. So there's that old term, that old biblical term, leave and cleave, right? You're gonna leave your father and mother and you are going to cleave to somebody else, glued together. This sexual relationship creates a strong bond between two people, which is why it's so painful when you break up with someone with whom you've had a sexual relationship with in the past. Just imagine two pieces of paper that are glued together, adhered to one another, 
right? As soon as you try to pull those two pieces of paper apart, you're not using either of those pieces of paper. Those two pieces of paper are useless now. Why? Because you don't have a, you don't have a full sheet of paper on one side or on the other. There's damage to both of those, which is why God reserves the sexual relationship only for marriage. It's why God designed the marriage relationship for life. Notice also that leaving in Matthew 19, 5 comes before cleaving. You leave and then you cleave. The marriage vow comes first, then the sexual relationship. Unfortunately, our culture has it in reverse. And most people in our culture do the cleaving before they do the leaving. And that has devastating consequences for, for marriages in our culture. And we'll talk more about that next week. You can really look forward to that um, when we examine the different challenges of marriage in our day and time. But we skipped over that second part of the definition earlier. So let's take a look at it now, that marriage is a sacred covenant relationship. We see this in Jesus' words in Matthew 19, 6. It says, they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Let no one separate. What God has joined together, let no one separate. Marriage is not simply a contract. Marriage is not simply a temporary commitment while it serves your needs. It is a covenant that you are making not only with an individual that you're standing across from as you're at the altar, but a covenant relationship that you're making with God as well. So like when, when we do marriages, right, when Jeff and I marry people, which is always a weird thing to say, but when Jeff and I are like marrying different people and all that stuff, we try to do our best to make them recognize this covenant. These vows that you are saying are not merely vows just that you are saying to your spouse. They're vows that you are making to your creator as well. They're vows that you're making to God for a lifetime of faithfulness. It's, it's made before God and it's sealed by God in heaven. And so when one man and one woman come together in marriage, they're no longer two, but they're one. And we don't do that. God does that. It has nothing to do with you. It's a sacred relationship. Therefore, what God has joined together, not what man has joined together, what God has joined together, your spouse for all of eternity, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And so this, this is what I, well, like, why does all of this matter? Because in a world that cares more about if something works than whether or not it's true, why does this matter? Well, first of all, it works. Let me just say that. It, it works. The biblical worldview is necessary because a godly marriage will point people back to God. It works because it was created to function that way. My kids, they love taking apart toys and then trying to put them back together. It's a disaster every single time, right? It never works. Um, they take it apart, it's broken, it's busted, it's put, it puts back together. But when they have a toy that is put together and it is created to do the thing that it was doing, it has the batteries in it and everything is like geared up and ready to go, that toy works perfectly. Why? Because it was created to function in that way. It was created to function like that perfectly. But then when we get in there, we just try to tinker with it. And we're like, well, hold up. What if we did this? Let's take this. Let's take this screw out. Let's, let's maybe detach the battery or put the motor in the back. Or let's, let's just jack with the total design of what the creator made it for. If we do that, then all of a sudden, not only do we get something that tends to not work, if it does work, it is limping around real bad. So marriage works, biblical marriage works because it was created to work in this way. It was created to work in a way that the Bible shows it how shows us how it is we should work. So how is it we should work? How do how do we make this function? Well, well, not like Brian said last week. We do our best to out sacrifice for one another. 
We do our best to out-sacrifice for one another so the rest of the world can see what it looks like for a wife to submit to her husband as her husband submits to Jesus. That's what it should look like. And that's, like, that's tough. I know how it works because it was created that way. That man submits to God, wife submits to husband, kids submit to wife, and there's this umbrella of protection across all of them. Why? Because we were made completely and totally equal, but way, way different. And this is God's design for marriage. But we also got to recognize that godliness in marriage is very closely connected to just godliness in general. Faithfulness to spouses and faithfulness to God are almost inseparable in scriptures. This is why we don't offer like marriage and and parenting classes, equipping groups, 100% of the time. Because everybody's like, oh, give me the secret to marriage. Like, how can we have a, a good biblical marriage? You know what leads to a godly marriage? Just being more godly. Like, so, no, we're not going to talk about marriage every week, but we are going to talk about how it is that we can become more godly every week. We're going to talk about what it looks like for us to become more holy, to become more set apart, to love Jesus more every single week. Because when you figure out how to love God more, and he continues to renew you, continues to renew your life, then guess what happens? That shows up in your marriage, and your marriage then becomes godly. And so both of these things are true. Men and women mutually submitting to God and one another as they continue to pursue God. Man, imagine what it would look like if we as a church were just able to get this part right. This just, like just as, if we got marriage right, if we were able to walk with God so closely that our marriages pointed people to Jesus. Because I don't know about you, but in my life, I know a lot of people who, who man, I could say, man, that, that man over there, he, is, he loves Jesus so much. Or that woman over there, I could tell she loves Jesus so much. Like, I want to follow their example. But there's fewer marriages that I can point to that exemplify God. And that should be incredibly concerning to the church. We should be able, off the top of our head, to be able to say, those two as a couple, man, they exemplify God. They exemplify, exemplify Christ's love for his church. Like, we should be able to get this part right, that we can point people to Jesus through our marriages. So this week as you go, a couple things. One, if you're single in the room and you feel attacked because of this series, Pastor Jeff, we got a message just for you in a couple weeks. But if you're single this week, I think all of this, all of these things, they need to be things that you can look for for just sustenance, like how you can move forward in your own relationship, that, that you should begin to look at healthy examples of people who are married that you are already in community with. And so then as you begin your trek towards marriage, if that is something that God has for you, the best starting point for having a biblical marriage is being more biblical, becoming more and more like Jesus. You want to be a good husband one day? Work on your relationship with Jesus, single people. You want to be a good wife one day? Work on your relationship with Jesus. So that's for you singles. If you're married or maybe in the first or newly married or first like 10-ish years of marriage, and I know there's quite a few of you, you in here, what, what is it maybe that you can really practically do? I think a good reminder that marriage isn't a man-made institution. When you said your vows, it was to one another, but more importantly, to God. So I'd say take a minute this week. 
Find your vows if you did like fancy creative vows and you guys are all creative and great, whatever. But for the rest of us who did traditional vows because we're not that creative, take your vows out and read them back to your spouse. Read them to your wife. Wives, read them to your husband. Do it over candlelight, guys. Know what I'm saying? Right? Like, do that and remind one another that, that marriage is more than a piece of paper. This is a covenant relationship. This is a vow that you have made both to your spouse as well as to God. And for the rest of you, people who have married, been married for longer than that, don't forget to delight in what God has given you in your spouse. The person that, that God has joined together. Don't forget to remember those things. And so something really, really practical. Make a list this week of how your spouse exemplifies Jesus and read it to them. Read it out loud to them. Don't just like jot it down and slide it on their nightstand. You guys have been married long enough. You've been through enough. You can write a list and read it to your spouse and say, thank you so much for exemplifying Jesus in this way. Thank you so much for pointing our relationship towards Jesus at this point. Encourage them. Thank them for what they have done for the kingdom as well as for you. Like our marriages should point people back to Jesus 100% of the time. And so I'll end with this. It's a story about two, uh, two people that I knew. Their name, were the, their name was the Hefners. And the Hefners were really old, like really, really, really old. Um, like, I think they celebrated their 130th anniversary old, okay? I mean, really, really old. And they were at this last, the church I was at, it's called uh, Central Presbyterian Church. I was an intern at the time. And um, we didn't see the Hefners often. We saw either Mr. Hefner sometimes, we saw Mrs. Hefner sometimes, we're dealing with health issues and different things like that. Um, and um, I remember one morning after not seeing Mr. Hefner for a long time, and a man who loved Jesus deeply. I mean, this is a man that like when he talked about Jesus, you wanted to listen to what he had to say about Jesus. Clear he had spent time with Jesus. And so he walked in one day and Mrs. Hefner was there with him. And so I was so excited because I hadn't seen him both together at church in a long time. And so I shook his hand. I said, Mr. Hefner, how are you? How are you doing? And his, lot, his eyes just, just lit up. I mean, just bright. And he was like, I'm so good. It's like, oh, cool. Why are you so good? He said, I got to hold my wife's hand the entire way to church. I was like, oh my gosh, that's the, that's the bar for so good, apparently, is just holding your wife's hand on the way to church. But then I remembered something. Then I started thinking about it rather afterwards. Mr. Hefner was excited for two reasons. Mr. Hefner was excited, one, because he got to come be a part of the fellowship of believers when for a long time he hadn't been connected to church. He got to come to church and, and worship God. He had to come to church and listen to the Bible being preached. He had to come to church and be with those people that he was in fellowship with. And he was so excited about that. But not only did he get to come to church, he got to bring his bride with him to church. He got to bring his, and, and hold her hand for at least 10 minutes. And so as I was thinking back to that, and Mr. and Mrs. Hefner passed away shortly after that, and so I was, as I was thinking about that and thinking about like, what is it that I would want in a biblical God-exemplifying marriage by the time that I am hopefully celebrating my 130th anniversary, was that, man, I just want to be excited to be able to hold my wife's hand the entire way as I go to church and honor and worship God as I'm there. God, I can't imagine anything better than that, as a matter of fact. 
I mean, maybe I got my kids with me and my grandkids, and at that point, it sounds like great, great, great grandkids because I'll be real old. But I can't imagine a marriage exemplifying God more than that, than just this faithful, committed, steady relationship that consistently is pointing people back to Jesus. Amen, church? Let's pray. God, thank you for marriage. Thank you for your first institution that you created for us. And God, I pray for, I mean, all the different types of marriages that we have in the room. For, pray for that marriage that, man, is just doing so well. That marriage that just seems like they wake up and they love each other and they love you well and everybody who comes into contact with them, man, they, they see Jesus. And so God, I pray that you would continue to strengthen that relationship. You would continue to mature that relationship. You would continue to draw people to you because of that relationship. So I pray for that. And God, I pray for the relationship that maybe just seems stuck. That maybe just seems like, man, I've done my best and I just have more of a roommate now than anything. God, I pray that you would ignite a fire in that relationship. That they would love one another passionately. They would come to love you in a more real way that they would remember why it is that they got married in the first place. Not just because it was some social contract, but because you joined them together from the get-go. So God, I pray for that stuck relationship. And God, I pray for the relationship that's just on the rocks right now. The relationship that doesn't seem to be clicking well. The marriage that maybe, maybe the best part of their marriage is just quietness so there's not arguing. God, I pray for that marriage that you would renew that marriage, that there would be a recommitment to who you are. There would be a recommitment to honoring your son in that marriage. That they would do their best to out-sacrifice one another. To out-serve one another. So then there would be this beautiful redemption story that can point people back to you. God, I just thank you for marriage. And God, I pray that our church would be a church that exemplifies Christ's commitment to his church, marriage. And so God, even for those in the room who maybe haven't yet said yes to you, haven't yet said yes to your son, but this idea of service and sacrifice and, and loving each other well and biblical worldview and all that stuff, maybe it stirred something up in them where they recognized that, and they need to say yes to Jesus this morning with heads still bowed and eyes still closed. If that's you today and you want to make a profession of faith, I would encourage you to do so. You could pray along with me. Simply say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, that I fall short. I fall short in my marriage, fall short in my personal life, I admit that. But B, I believe that you sent your son to die on a cross for me. And beyond that, present a biblical worldview for marriage. But I believe he, he conquered sin. And C, that I choose to follow you every single day from the moment I wake up to the moment I shut my eyes at night that I would choose to follow you 
both in my personal life as well as my marriage, Father. So we love you, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.